welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope you're having a very blessed day. Remember to catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. Or you can always catch us online if you missed an episode. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Or look us up on your favorite podcast app. And then make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss any of our future conversations. And take a listen to some of our past episodes while you're there. We've got a really great archive. In today's episode, we're talking about bioethics and public policy and the sometimes competing visions of the human person and human flourishing that shape our discussion and discourse around difficult bioethical questions. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about special legislative sessions and why they seem to be less special and more commonplace. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we're going to be talking about special observances during the month of June. And listeners, if you ever have an idea for the bricklayer segment, or maybe it's a question you have about politics, send those questions my way. Shoot me an email, go to show at mncatholic.org, or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Professor Carter Sneed from the University of Notre Dame. He's one of the world's leading experts on public questions of bioethics, the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. His research explores issues relating to neuroethics, genetic enhancement, human embryo research, assisted reproduction, abortion, and end-of-life decision-making. In 2016, he was appointed to the Pontifical Academy for Life, the principal bioethics advisory board to the papacy and Pope Francis. He is the author of the recent book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, published by Harvard University Press, which the Wall Street Journal named one of the 10 best books of 2020. Not one of the 10 best bioethics books, but one of the 10 best books of 2020. So I think our conversation will stimulate you to check that out. Professor Carter Sneed, it is great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Oh, it's a great pleasure to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Why did you write this book? What was the compelling why behind uh, taking the endeavor to uh, put pen to paper and write a book on such a complex topic? It's been about 20 years since I've been involved in public bioethics. I'm a lawyer by training, and I served as general counsel on President Bush's Council on Bioethics uh, in the early 2000s. And ever since I've been involved in public bioethics, the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology, I've been troubled by the fact that we so frequently fail in American law to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. And I, I you know, for decades wanted to figure out why that is. And after you know, a couple decades of study and reflection and work in the public square, I decided to write down my thoughts. And that's really the genesis of this book. It's kind of an explanation for why it is, I think, that in the law, we so frequently fail to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us. What is that failure? What's the source of it in uh, these questions? It seems like this question of autonomy seems to reign supreme in all questions of bioethics, that you can make all sorts of arguments, but at the end of the day, the autonomy principle seems to come back to the front. It sure does, and that's deeply connected to my diagnosis of the problem. I mean, all law exists to promote the flourishing of persons and to protect persons. That's what law is for. I mean, that orients it, that, that gives you a metric that you can use to measure its success or failure. 
And so all law has to have a prior set of assumptions about what a person is and what human flourishing is. And what I found in my analysis, and I focused on three specific areas of public bioethics, abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, what I found was the vision of the person that was at the core of these different areas of law was false and impoverished and didn't give a full picture of who we are and what we owe to each other. And that, I think, is the chief explanation for why these laws actually fail to protect people and to promote their flourishing, because the laws at bottom get wrong who we are, what we need, and what we owe to each other. And the vision of the human person that anchors and animates these particular legal areas is what some philosophers and sociologists call expressive individualism. And it's only a very partial account of who we are, what we owe to each other. And as a result, it cannot serve the purpose of being the grounding for laws and policies that are supposed to protect us and to promote our success and thriving. So let's first um, start with the expressive individualism. What, what does that mean practically for our listeners out there in yeah. uh, Black Duck, Minnesota? Yeah, that, what, what is a philosophy right. of expressive individualism that's guiding our public bioethics questions? Yeah, it's probably an unfamiliar term to most people, and it sounds kind of philosophically obscure, but I think people, when they hear it, it's de- it described, they'll recognize something very familiar to them. So expressive individualism understands people through the lens fundamentally of their will. It's individualistic in the, in the sense that it takes the fundamental unit of human reality to be the individual human being, abstracted from any connections to family or tradition or civilization or community. It just takes the, the fundamental reality to be the individual person and then describes the person's flourishing through the lens of their will and their desire. Really what makes a person a person, what defines you and me, according to this false anthropology, let's call it, is that we are our minds. We are our set of desires. Everything else is instrumental. Everything else is used as a tool to try to realize the object of our will and our desires. And the way we discern the future life plan for ourselves is by interrogating the sort of depths of our interior self, by reflecting on the inside. What do we feel? What do we want? What are the primary object of our desires that come up from inside ourselves without reference to, again, friends, family, tradition, civilization, religion, anything like that? And so everything else, the body, the community, your relationship with other people, your family, are mere instruments to pursuing the projects that bubble up from inside yourself. Therefore, all relationships are transactional. There are no ends in nature. You can't look around and take guidance from the natural world or our own bodies or nature around us to figure out what things are for or what their purposes are. That's what philosophers call teleology, the idea that there are actual ends and purposes in nature that can be discovered. This expressive individualism holds that there are no such ends. The world is what you make it. And really, what matters is what comes authentically from your inside. And it might actually end up being transgressive, but it'll certainly be original and unique. And you have a kind of imperative to follow your own originality. And and I think listeners will recognize a lot of those ideas in contemporary American life. You are what you choose to be, my body, my choice. Autonomy, as you said a moment ago, is the fundamental good towards which all other things should be should be oriented. And while this may be a kind of attractive and romantic vision of what it means to be a person, it sure only takes a couple minutes of reflection about our individual and shared lives and our life history, but that doesn't even come close to describing the arc of our life, what our life means, who we are, and what we owe to each other. 
You captured the low-hanging fruit, my body, my choice, you're not the boss of me, is the easy way to describe this mentality. And you see it in questions like abortion, you see it in questions such as assisted suicide, but even in more mundane things like how we approach the question of wearing masks during a pandemic, whether or not to get a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not to say to make a judgment about those things. It's to say, how do we approach the question? Is it a question of autonomy or is it a question of what we owe to each other and how we relate to each other? And I think that's what you're proposing as the alternative to expressive individualism is a deeper understanding of ourselves as dependent on one another, a broader vision of human flourishing. So if your book title is What It Means to Be Human, Professor Sneed, tell us, what does it mean to be human? That's a bold... Uh, that's a bold uh, well, well, it's a, it's obviously the oldest question that we have, right? What does indeed. it mean to be human? What are What is man that God is mindful of him? As the psalmist said, it's really the second half of the title that I focus on to answer that question. And that is, it's what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. And a fundamental aspect of our identity is the fact that we are embodied beings. We are bodies. We don't merely have bodies, but we in fact are bodies. We're a dynamic union of mind and body. Expressive individualism only focuses on our minds and our cognitive capacities, whereas the Catholic view of the person and the view of the person that I'm espousing in this book, although I don't call it the Catholic position in the book, I derive it from the reality of embodiment itself, but it's perfectly consistent with the Catholic understanding of what a person is. A person is a dynamic, integrated unity of mind and body, and to, to fail to take seriously our lives as embodied beings is to miss the fact that because we're embodied, we're mutually dependent upon one another, we're vulnerable, we're subject to natural limits, and it orients us towards one another in a way that we have to take care of each other. And what we need to live, to survive first, you know, we're babies, and later if we ever are, find ourselves in a condition of dependency because of illness or injury, some people find themselves in that condition for their entire lives, those people are still, and we are still members of the moral and legal communities when we're in those conditions of dependency, because frankly, that's what it means to be in flourishing as a human being. And what we need is one another in these, what Alistair McIntyre, Catholic philosopher, calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. We're composed of people who are willing to make the goods of others their own goods without seeking anything in return. And, and the most pristine example of this, of course, is, is parenthood. The idea of parents take care of their children, not because of a contract to do it, not because they're hoping to get something out of it, not because it fulfills some deep need of their own, although it might fulfill a deep need. The fundamental reason you take care of your kids is because of the relationship that you have, because you, you have to, because that's what it means to be a parent. And a child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for by his or her parents, it's intrinsic to the relationship itself. And so in the book, I argue that by virtue of our embodiment, we are made for love and friendship. And you have to augment the vision of expressive individualism. You have to combine that idea of the importance of our minds and free will and our desires and so forth, which are important and are a part of our lives. But it doesn't even come close to explaining the full truth about who we are. To do that, you have to, re what, you have to remember the body. You have to remember that we're embodied, and you have to think about what that means. And when you do that, I argue in the book, you realize that we have obligations to one another, we have to care for one another, and we're most fully human when we're taking care of one another. Professor Sneed, I think your point would strike some as odd because it seems like we haven't forgotten the body. In fact, we're obsessed with it. That's all we think about, and images of bodies are everywhere all around us. So what's the disconnect there between our obsession with the body on one hand and our forgottenness of the, of the reality of our embodied nature. That's a really, really wonderful and perceptive 
question. I think that the images of the body, the obsession that you described, is the obsession of the body as a kind of tool. We think of our bodies as a key instrument in realizing the projects of our will, but it's not regarded as a reality that is essential to our identity. It's instead reviewed as something that's completely plastic, changeable, and manipulable for the sake of realizing the projects of our will. And fundamentally, who we really are is our minds. Who we really are is who we are on the inside. And our bodies are merely something that's important to to use as a tool. But I think the, the framing and the cultural milieu that you just described is still thinking of the body as a tool or instrument rather than coextensive with our identity itself. We are speaking with Professor Carter Sneed. He is a law professor at the University of Notre Dame and the author of the recent book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body and Public Bioethics, which the Wall Street Journal named one of the 10 best books of 2020. Professor Sneed, how do you see the public square, the public discourse, the arguments for the the case for the body? Can philosophical arguments, can natural reason alone provide that thick grounding and anthropology that we need to have productive conversations in this area and overcome that expressive individualism? Or do we fundamentally need to get back to theology and the, the rich theological anthropology found in Genesis about who we are? We definitely need theology, and it's probably the case. And I say this in the book. The book is an argument based on our lived experience and trying and asking people to think about the arc of their lives and what it means to try to draw these inferences. But it's at the end of the day, I, if you want to go deeper, then you have to have theology, because the, the most extraordinary witness and powerful signal of the meaning of the body and who we are is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's more powerful and more evocative than anything I can say in the book. Alongside reasoned argument, even theological argument, the more important way, I believe, to capture the hearts and minds of people, especially in a culture that's kind of hardened and polarized, as we found right now, people are sort of at each other's throats. They're not in a position to listen to each other. They're not in a position to hear arguments. The first thing you have to do, and the church has been the greatest proponent and model of this throughout history, is that the first order of business is not to persuade people, but to love them. The first order of business is to take care of people. So when we invented the hospital, the Catholic Church invented the hospital, we didn't ask people who came to the hospital, what do you believe, or give them a catechism lesson before we treated them. And Mother Teresa didn't do that before she fed people and cared for them or accompanied them in their dying. The radical witness of the church, the radical, unconditional love and hospitality that the church extends, we're called to do that as a matter of our faith and thinking about the Good Samaritan and thinking about the teachings of of our Lord. But also, that's the thing that will change hearts and minds. That's the thing that's going to melt hard hearts. When people see that we Catholics care for them regardless of our agreements or disagreements and reach out to them and love them unconditionally, that's so countercultural and so shocking to the system, and it's so foreign to anything else in our adversarial individualistic culture that I really think that that, at the end of the day, is an essential element to transforming the culture. It's not just good arguments, well-crafted, or even good theological arguments. At the end of the day, it's radical love, radical witness. It's being Jesus with everybody that we encounter. It's offering that credible witness to a, a better vision of the human person and human flourishing. 
You mentioned Professor Sneed parenthood as one way in which we embody that dependency upon one another and that unmerited self-giving, so to speak. Where are some other instances or examples of this credible witness in defense of life and human flourishing? You know, we have the throwaway culture, which disposes the elderly, the disabled, the right. vulnerable, even the prisoner on some level. What are some credible examples in your mind of ways in which people are living that witness to these truths? The one that always comes to mind, and I've already mentioned, is Mother Teresa. I mean, what she did in Calcutta, St. St. Teresa of Calcutta, going into the slums, going into the places, and finding the people who were literally untouchable in those in those communities, and caring for them and treating them as they would treat Jesus Christ Himself, is an extraordinary historical example that comes to mind. There are obviously modern contemporary examples, more modern, ongoing contemporary examples right now. I think about the Little Sisters of the Poor. You mentioned the elderly and the dying. There's no more beautiful witness to selfless caregiving and and the giving of oneself to other without seeking anything in return than the Little Sisters of the Poor who reach out and care for the elderly poor and the dying and treat them in the way that we're all called to treat folks. And then, of course, the Sisters of Life as well in New York, who reach out to women in need and care for them and make them part of their family and love them and support them, provide them a place to live, provide them material resources, but even more important, loving, kindness, community, and spiritual resources. And then other than those amazing religious sisters that do that, that show us how we should be, there are obviously examples of lay people doing the same thing, the Women's Care Center, which there are women's care centers in Minnesota, which is an extraordinary kind of wraparound service provider for women and families in need, women facing unexpected pregnancies. Those are the immediate examples that come to mind. Professor Sneed, we've had tremendous success keeping assisted suicide off the public radar here with our partner organization, the Alliance for Ethical Healthcare. We're not just content opposing the legalization of assisted suicide, but we're also proposing better care along the lines that you've discussed, promoting better palliative care resources, more funding and resources for personal care assistance for the disabled, veteran suicide prevention initiatives, and things of that sort. So I'd like to think that the work we've done here on that front is very consistent with what you're talking about in terms of that broader culture of human care and well-being. But where else are you seeing your argument resonating with which, with certain audiences or in the public discourse? Is it causing people to rethink and perhaps overcome the the deficit of that expressive self-individualism, which seems to just suffocate, the ambient culture just suffocates us with that mental architecture? Well, that's a great question. One of the things that I've been gratified to see is that because the argument is framed, and this is true of the Catholic Church's position as well uh, in, in public discourse, is that the arguments I make in the book are not are, don't fit easily within American political categories. They're not conservative arguments. They're not liberal arguments. They're arguments about what it means to be and flourish as a human being. And there are things that liberals and conservatives alike that resonate with them. But then there's some things that I think are also challenging. And I and I one thing that I've found that I've been gratified to see is that there are folks across the ideological spectrum thus far who have found something in the book that they believe to be helpful and true and beneficial to rethinking about how we how we care for one another. So there's a whole chapter on abortion, and it's not merely, and it describes the history of abortion in America and describes the jurisprudence of abortion and then sort of analyzes it and shows that that what's driving and animating the jurisprudence of abortion in America is this false anthropology of expressive individualism. And the solution is, I mean, the solution to that problem 
is not merely a solution of overturning Roe v. Wade and and taking care of unborn babies, although, of course, that's obviously essential to the response that we have to to do. And hopefully now with the grant of certiorari in the Dobbs case, uh, the Supreme Court might very well be poised to undo Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, God willing. But it also it also if you take seriously the the uh, you know what McIntyre calls these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving and virtues of acknowledged dependence, it actually provides a roadmap to care for not just unborn babies, but for their mothers and for their fathers and for the whole communities in which they find themselves, as well as people whose lives have been broken by abortion uh, or even and even even abortionists themselves. Yeah, if you care about uh, saving lives, then we also need to be attentive to the the housing crisis that women in crisis pregnancies might face. We need to be attentive to some of their economic concerns. Many women uh, who choose abortion already have a child, so a sonogram is not going to convince them not to, but they need to know that if they have this child, they can still have access to a job, education, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're arguing for, it seems, is to see these choices and these decisions made within the context of a web of human relationships and speaking into each of those as opposed to looking at an issue merely in the abstract. Would that be an accurate way of describing things? No, that's a very, very nice way to say it. Absolutely agree. In, in a nutshell, what else would you like to share with our audience? We've got list Catholics listening from and others, hopefully listening from across Minnesota here. What do we need to know about answering and engaging the most challenging bioethics questions of our time? Yeah, so I, I think, again, I, I would encourage people to, to read the book. Uh, it is what, what it means to be human, the case of the body and public bioethics. They can, they can get it on Amazon. They can get it on Barnes & Noble. They can get it anywhere, but the Harvard University Press website. I think there's a lot in the book to think about, and there's a, there's a history of American bioethics in the book. There's a kind of long reflection on expressive individualism, uh, its philosophical underpinnings, but also what's needed in response to it. And then these kinds of, diff- again, focusing on these three vital conflicts of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making. So I would encourage people to, to, to pick up the book. I think it's a good place to start. Also, I'm the director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture here at the University of Notre Dame which aims to share the richness of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition across a variety of disciplines at the very highest level. We have a very significant student formation program, the Soren Fellows Program, named for Father Soren, the founder of our university. We have over 300 students, undergraduate and graduate students. We, we, we're the principal engine of Notre Dame's commitment to building a culture of life. And so we have a wide variety of initiatives and activities in that respect. We have research and publications, of course, and academic programming. And we also assist and support the university in hiring uh, folks, uh, elite faculty who share our passion for Notre Dame's distinctive Catholic mission. You can go to our website at ethicscenter.nd.edu. We have a lot of wonderful supporters, by the way, in Minnesota, a lot of Notre Dame alums and Notre Dame friends and family in Minnesota. And uh, Hopefully they can tune in to your wonderful podcast. I'm sure they do. But I think if you go to our website, if you check out the book uh, and come to visit us at Notre Dame, we would uh, we can continue these wonderful conversations. Indeed, and that fall conference that the DeNicola Center puts on every year is just outstanding. I've been to a couple of those, and, and well worth the trip to Our Lady's University. Professor Carter Steed, thanks for joining the Bridge Builder Program today. It's been great to have you on. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back. 
back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kid, what's in this week's mailbag? Governor Walz will need to be calling a special session since the legislature and he were not able to actually pass a budget before regular session ended back on May 17th. And that led one of our listeners to want to know more about why it's called a special session. And she asked because they simply seem to happen so regularly. The listener also asked, shouldn't there be more of a requirement that legislatures get their work done on time? So the answer to that question is there's there's many answers to that. Legislators normally have about five months to get a budget done starting in January of the odd year of the legislative session, the start of it, through about the third week in May, and there's a constitutional deadline in which they have to adjourn. And uh, that was rooted in an old suspicion that um, you wanted you didn't want lawmakers making too many laws and giving them time to do so. They just need to do the basics and then get out. There was a presumption of liberty that if you didn't need laws, you didn't need laws. Um, the world has changed, though, since 1858 when uh, Minnesota became a state and enacted its original constitution. Part of that is the complexity of the budget. Um, you know, even in the last 10 years, the budget has gone from about $30 billion to $50 billion. The likely budget will be this year, $51.2 billion. So you're seeing a 67% increase in the size of the budget, uh, really, in just 10 years. There's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of programs. Um, and there's a lot of business and for legislators to sort through. So that's complex and that's challenging. That being said, is five months normally time enough to get it done? Indeed it is. One of the challenges, though, in Minnesota is that we always seem to have divided government. And we have divided government. You have differences on priorities. And there's a lot of partisan gamesmanship, quite frankly. And so they call each other's bluff and uh, wait till the very end until there's pressure to actually get something done. They see what emerges during the legislative session, and they're not too quick to do a deal before they're constitutionally mandated to do so. Now, the real pressure is not so much the end-of-session deadline as the uh, reality that if there's not a budget for the next biennium, which starts July 1st, of the budget year, um, then there's a government shutdown, and then the state loses access to services, employees get laid off, et cetera, et cetera. That's the real deadline at the end of the day that's emerged in terms of developing a budget. And so what legislators will do is that uh, we have special sessions precisely because um, they're going to wait until absolutely necessary to try to get the best deal they can. Uh, and it's just a reality uh, at the end of the day of this, the nation's only divided legislature and some of the partisan differences um, that emerge. But that being said, it is a testament to our lawmakers that they can land the plane, they can come to some agreement, which in the American political scene is relatively rare. Thanks, Jason, for kind of explaining the, the intricacies that we have here in Minnesota with that split legislature. Uh, what do you have this week in the bricklayer segment? How can people start to really connect their faith and public life, especially during this month of June? Well, the month of June is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, hearts of love, hearts of purity. And especially uh, as we think about June in the broader culture is emerging as Pride Month, what does real love look like? What is real uh, self-gift, uh, as Professor Sneed was talking about earlier in the show? What does it mean to truly be human? What promotes authentic human flourishing? And that's God's plan for us. And ultimately, we know and understand God's plan when our hearts are pure, when our hearts are made of love and are soft, like that sacred heart of Jesus 
extending mercy and grace to others, but also rooting that grace and that mercy in truth, in a proper conception of the human person that promotes human flourishing. So in a difficult month in which we see alternative messages in our culture all around us, it's important to be rooted in the perspective of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the love and purity of those two hearts, letting those guide our approach to public policy and our work in the public square. This year, the feast day of the Sacred Heart falls on June 11th, as it is always 19 days after Pentecost. Maybe it's a private holy hour, dedicating a Mass, or participating in a novena to the Sacred Heart. But root yourself in the Sacred Heart of Mary, our Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, for that love and purity that we need to produce real fruit and real grace in our public square. It's also a reminder that Religious Freedom Week starts June 22nd by visiting mncatholic.org slash religiousfreedomweek. You'll find resources including a library of videos, podcasts, past presentations, and more, which you can use as educational material for yourself, your family, or your parish, especially as some of these controversial anthropological questions on sexuality uh, come up and at the intersection of religious freedom. Uh, and it's an important question during that month of uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus to reflect also on religious freedom and a proper understanding of the human person. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to follow us on our podcast app. Uh, leave us a five-star rating if you so choose, and then click share so that more Catholics can begin to build the bridge between faith and public life. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. Share your ideas for the Bricklayer segment or send us your questions for the mailbag. You can leave us a comment at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in and to the Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week. For Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, I'm Jason Atkins. Thanks again for listening, and have a blessed day.